A reading from the epistle of First Peter. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you, are sin, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Um, that was pretty entertaining. Let me tell you what happened during that third song. What we have done is we are shuffling our order of service, and I should have said, hey, we're going to wait to pass the peace in greeting with one another till after communion. But guess what? I didn't. So a lot of you went and just started hugging, and I'm sure newcomers were going, what is happening right now? So that's on me. But uh, we're going to have another passing of the peace, and actually, in line with how the ancient church did it, we're kind of reordering our order of service going forward. We'll explain that before communion, but in the meantime, now's the, the time I typically preach a message. Uh, but in lieu of a message, I'm actually going to, going to be uh, unfolding someone's story or someone's testimony this morning. Um, this passage we just read from 1 Peter, it's, it's pretty tough, it's pretty challenging. Talking about sub submitting yourselves to all authorities. And uh, we have someone in our midst whose wife actually just recorded his story as a soldier from the Vietnam War. It took the wife, uh, her name is Kathy, she's in the back of the room. Kathy, can you wave your hand for us? Um, it took Kathy 50 years, 50 years to hear this story. That's how hard and painful it was for Jim, her husband, to tell the story of what it was like to be a soldier in Vietnam, be a young officer in Vietnam. So I have invited Pastor Jim, um, who serves with us, uh, to come and sit with us this morning and tell us a little of his story and what it was like to lead both then and now. So can we give our own Pastor Jim Amendola a round of applause? 
And as Jim comes forward, um, I, I just want to highlight this book, which you can pick up online on, on Amazon. It's called 13 Months. 13 Months. And it's, it's a fast read. It's a gritty read. And, uh, but I highly recommend it. And so um, some of you know Jim. Uh, he's been with our church, our church plant from the beginning. Some of you don't. Some of you are visiting for the first time today. So uh, to begin, I want us to kind of pull back the veil and learn a little bit about who Jim uh, is in terms of his whole story. And so Jim, uh, I know first, before we begin, you want to give uh, some thanks to those. Yes, I do. Uh, there's some people I want to thank who helped us out. Kathy started on this journey back in January um, during a snowstorm. Last year, January. Last year. Yep. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. old, forget, <laughs> I don't know, whenever it was. Um, but the idea was uh, she had heard snippets over the years, and she wanted to get it down on paper primarily because she uh, did not like the way Vietnam veterans have been portrayed in the public and the media and in movies. Um, and the perceptions are very odd compared to reality. So she started down this journey, and it was mostly for our kids who had not heard the story. Um, so it was a surprise Christmas gift for them this uh, last Christmas. Um, so I did want to thank uh, Kenneth Paget. actually did the uh, design for the book cover. Uh, he also did the graphics for us. Uh, his mother, Carol, was very helpful in her uh, editing of that. And I want to thank Frank, uh, who, Frank Wilborn, who helped out uh, in the early editions, as well as uh, Dave Pitchford, which, you know, that's part of the body of Christ. We help each other out. Mm. And that, that's how that got produced, yeah. by the grace of God. So um, as we enter into this time, why don't we begin at the beginning, uh, which is where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Arlington, Virginia. That's right across the river from uh, Washington, D.C., just south of the Potomac. And uh, in one word, how would you describe the home in which you grew up? Miserable. Um, home life was miserable. Uh, it was dominated by alcoholism, fighting, bickering, arguing. Uh, that's the way I grew up. And the fact was, in our neighborhood where I lived, that was common among the other kids I played with. So it was, to me, that was normal. And how about the church? Did you grow up in and around the church? Grew up in a Catholic church, spent 13 years in Catholic school, survived it. Um, <laughs> And uh, it, to me, it was not a bad experience. Uh, it was a good education. Uh, but growing up in the church, that's exactly what we were doing. We were growing up in the church. Uh, it was about the church structure, church leadership, churchy things, but no relationship with Jesus Christ. That was absent. Now, I should say in recent years, I think the Catholic Church has shifted in another direction to get more focused on redemption through Jesus Christ rather than some other means. So that being said, you know, fast forward, you're a young adult, you've just graduated high school, um, 
you've, you've shared that you're actually waiting for Kathy to graduate high school behind you so that y'all can get married. How did you end up as a young officer in Vietnam? Take us through that journey. Let's see. Uh, going back to 1962, when I turned 18, back then you had to register for the draft. As soon as you turned 18, you didn't have very many days to register, otherwise somebody would come after you. Uh, <clears throat> so I registered while I was still in high school, and then uh, after high school I worked kind of at a dead-end job for about a year just waiting for Kathy to graduate. And while we were waiting for June to roll around somewhere right around in February, uh, I got the notice from Uncle Sam they wanted to draft me into the Army. And I said, not a chance. So I went around that and enlisted in the Marine Corps. And uh, nothing against the Army, Butch, okay. <clears throat> but I'm a, not a soldier, I'm a Marine, okay. We're all right. Um, so I did uh, enlist. A few months later, I went to Paris Island, South Carolina and uh, went through three months worth of training there. And while I was at Paris Island, that's when the Gulf of Tonkin erupted. And life changed for everybody. Nobody recognized it at the time, but life changed dramatically. So after Paris Island, I spent a month in uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, getting infantry training, and then got shipped down to the Marine Barracks in Jacksonville, Florida, and ended up spending the next two years guarding nuclear weapons. Awful duty. Boring, tedious, and boring again. Uh, <clears throat> but during that time, the war was heating up, and there were a lot of second lieutenants getting killed. And in order for the Marine Corps to make up for that, they took a lot of our senior staff NCOs, made them temporary officers to fill in the gap. And while they were filling in the gap, realizing that they too were going to be lost, they reached down farther into the sergeant and corporal ranks, which I was at the time a corporal, and opened up an opportunity to go to officer candidate school and then training at the basic school to be uh, commissioned a second lieutenant. Uh, in June of that same year, uh, Kathy and I were married, uh, June 11th, 1966. Is that right, Kathy? Okay, he got the date right. Got the Good date job. Right. Okay. Well, it's on the ring. I could read <laughs> okay. that, but uh, I didn't want to cheat with the notes. But uh, it was um, a difficult time. We knew we had maybe six months together and then I was going to be gone, because by December I was ordered overseas to Vietnam. So as the book highlights, you're 22 years old. You're sent to Vietnam. You're both under and over people, men, in battle. Our passage today reads, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. How did this apply to you, being subject to authority, both with the men who were over you and the men who were under you? Well, in the military, you have a chain of command that starts at the private level, goes all the way to the highest generals, right up through government officials, appointed and elected, so you know what the chain of command is. And when orders come down, you obey them. You don't have an option 
of disobeying them, unless it's to do something illegal, immoral, or improper, uh, or against the law. So you understand what the chain of command is like, and you follow it, even when you get somebody who's just not mentally right as a commander, you gotta deal with it mm. and submit to that. Uh, and that's not always fun. Now, I'm looking over here at Jeff and what I'm saying about the military, I can, you can say about the police, probably, you could say the same thing. You, you run into authorities that you just have to follow. Um, and uh, as a leader, you have to be the buffer between some of that rather strange guidance that you're getting and orders that you're getting. You gotta implement them, but at the same time, you have to be the buffer between the men and those assignments. So you, on one hand, you've gotta care for your men, but you also still have to lead them. That's correct. And you have to do it in a manner to where they have confidence in you, because if they see you kicking back against commands and orders, they're gonna do the same thing, and you can't have that. Mm. Just can't have it. And as the book highlights, um, there are several times where you lost confidence in your superiors. And uh, can you mention maybe an example of that and what the cost was with that? Well, the most egregious one is attributed to the Secretary of Defense who decided to build this marginal line from the South China Sea all the way to the border of Laos along the DMZ, demilitarized zone. Demilitarized zone was an area in which by international agreement, you could not use that. You couldn't go even enter into it. Um, so he came up with a strategy and tactic to do that. Um, everybody, right down to the lowest private, knew this was the most moronic idea anybody ever came up with. Mm. Um, the Maginot Line was the, the French, after World War I, built this Maginot Line to keep the Germans out. It didn't work. Germans just went right around through the Ardennes and came right into France, walked in there. And that's exactly what the North Vietnamese were doing. They didn't need the DMC to infiltrate to the south. They just walked around it. So we were in that position, and during the first four months of that, there was a lot of battle going on. And it was a running gunfight. The North Vietnamese were using their artillery in the DMZ, shooting at us, and we couldn't shoot back. Um, you could even take rifle fire. You couldn't shoot back. So that becomes very frustrating. And when you're trying to lead men who are getting frustrated and angry, you got to work through that. It's, it's not, not easy. Mm. Um, there's a lot of language to describe all of that, which I'll spare you. But nonetheless, uh, in, in that four months, there was a significant number of heavy battles, one of which was on May the 8th. And in that one night, we had 44 men killed and 118 wounded out of less than 300 men. So we suffered heavy casualties in the whole nine months that we were up there. The first four months were very intense. The remaining months were not so intense, but just as deadly. And in the book, you, you share about, you know, uh, the cost of life, you know, the, 
from this incompetent leadership. And it's very personal. These are, it's not just statistics you're talking about. These are friends, people that uh, you went to you know, training with and officer school. One of the gentlemen that is mentioned in the book is Sergeant Amos, mm-hmm. who, uh, if I recall, uh, was in Jacksonville with you and then happened to have uh, a baby son the same day as your first baby son. So you guys shared some real bonds. And in the book, you record his death. Uh, later that morning, the lieutenant, meaning Jim, got word of Sergeant Amos's and Staff Sergeant Gustafson's demise. Even though the news wasn't unexpected, the lieutenant was especially grieved over the loss of Sergeant Amos. He paused, unable to speak while he tried to gather his thoughts and remember both valiant men as they had been when he last saw them. He felt devastated at their loss and again had to stuff down his overwhelming emotions. The sergeant remembered at Giolin about a month before when Sergeant Amos had remarked to him, let's forget about all this war foolishness. Let's just go home and see those little boys. The lieutenant had wholeheartedly agreed, and that was the last conversation the two men ever had. Why him? He has a wife and a new baby he's never seen. Why are so many good men dying? How can we continue to allow such destruction of human life, such a waste? God, why? It isn't fair. So shifting now to even that last comment, how did all this incompetent leadership and loss of life impact your view of God as a soldier? Or as an officer? Marine. Officer, excuse me. Soldier, Marine. Dirty word. <laughs> <laughs> How did it impact your uh, all this loss? How did it impact your your view of God? Well, being in uh, Roman Catholic Church, your view of God is He's somewhere out there, mysterious, far away, out of touch, because you're not taught about a personal relationship with Him. You never heard that. You never heard a come to Jesus statement, ever. So it was more about doing what the church wanted, doing what the church leadership wanted. There was this disconnect between God and us as individuals. It's like he's up there, he knows what's going on, but he's not involved in it. Uh, And that was the view that I had at that time. And I really had no personal relationship with him prior to 77. So it was difficult to process. And I'm questioning, you know, all this evil, death, and destruction. But at the same time, there's the goodness of God. And how do I reconcile those two? Carrying pain, carrying suffering, carrying great difficulty in that context. And yet, you're going into this dark kind of spiral as the book details, uh, and yet there's some men around you that seem to be in a different place. And we're gonna talk about one of those men. Uh, the, the passage today uh, reads, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And in your book, uh, you highlight a friend named Sergeant Gottlieb. And there was something different about Gottlieb and he sent you a little gift. Can you share about those two things? Okay. I knew Jack Gottlieb from the barracks. Um, 
And he was always a serious-minded guy, very straightforward, very honest, huge amount of integrity, always did what he was supposed to do, executed his duties, not just superlatively, but with peace and a quiet gentleness that was evident. There was, there was something different about him. Um, later on, I would term it as salt and light. He was living his Christianity uh, in his daily actions, despite some of the foolishness that went on around us. And I ran into him uh, in a base just north of uh, Way City. And when I encountered him, I just kind of caught up with him and some other guys from the barracks, and we mostly talked about how many guys in the barracks we had lost, because they had roughly about 135 men in that unit, and it shrunk down to less than 85 by the time I left in February of 66, because the manpower strengths were just strained to the breaking point. Um, but Jack was a different kind of guy. And there were others that were like him that made deep impressions on me. It wasn't, he wasn't in my face with anything. He just lived his life in a way that I knew he had something that I didn't have. Yeah, you mentioned quiet peace. He has a quiet peace about him. So he, he does his first tour and then he goes home to Pennsylvania. Right. And soon thereafter, you get a gift in the mail. What did you get in the mail? Got this. I don't drop the microphone. Uh, he sent me a Bible. It's a good old King James one. Um, I can actually still read the small print. Uh, carried this with me for years. Sat on my desk. Still does. I've taken it off the bookshelf. It's been on the bookshelf for the past couple of years, but I put it back on the desk where it belongs. Uh, and I carried that with me as a remembrance of him. Jack lives on. He passed away a few years ago but he still lives on. And I still remember the quiet witness that he made and impacted me to start stirring in me something that I didn't know what to do with. Mm. Well, speaking of not knowing what to do, you mentioned you know, serving your tour, your first tour, and then uh, flying home and trying to reemerge with your wife and family, and it was so difficult. Your book, reads like this. For 10 years after his first tour of duty in Vietnam, he brooded. He seethed inwardly and he drank heavily. He couldn't come to terms with the terrible loss of life. He couldn't reconcile, rationalize, explain, or understand the ignorance and stupidity of that war. He selfishly looked into himself and never considered the impact of his depression on his wife and children. By 1974, his wife found a new faith in Jesus. Her life changed dramatically, and the lieutenant observed a new hope within her. Perhaps, he thought, I need that same kind of change. Does she have what I'm so desperately searching for? And he re-examined his life. It was a mess. How could the world culture he knew from the past so radically have changed in such a short time he knew there had to be something more to life. He searched, yet he could not find the answers. So Jim, as you left the war, you faced incredible grief and depression. You didn't know how to navigate. What was the hardest part in readjusting when you returned home? Mm. That is a tough question. Um, 
because I still don't know that I got the answer. We were readjusting. Um, and as I was flying home, I was processing, trying to process all this stuff. And my thinking essentially was, I'm not the same. I'm different now. I'm radically different from what I was 13 months earlier. Kathy, at this point, was different. I mean, she went through the pain of that same 13 months, waiting every day for the casualty officer to come knocking at the door, which he did twice in that 13 months. Uh, that was awful for her. She was home alone. She had no family support on her side of the family or my side of the family, except for her sister was there to help from time to time. But she went through it step by step in the exchange of our letters. She was there. She had some understanding of the grief I was going through. But what we learned later, um, she had the same grief. She had to stuff it down and had to defer to me, being the sicker one, to get healthier. And in that, she held that back. I mean, what she had just as much anger over this as I did, but she had to keep it in and couldn't let it out. Um, she does let it out every now and then. Well, she let it out at one point, you know, in 1974, right? Yeah. 1974, she starts going to these prayer meetings with charismatics, yes. charismatic Catholics, yep. and she comes to faith in Jesus. Yes. And she comes home, and what does she say to you, Jim? Well, she came home that first night, and I tell you, she was radically changed. Something radically happened in that meeting that changed her. Um, uh, I don't, I mean, you'd have to get it out of her, uh, the whole story. It's too long, unless you got another 45 minutes. No, no. <laughs> we'll reserve but that I, for but another time. She did come back from the meeting that one night, and she came in to our apartment, and I was sitting on the couch reading a book. And um, so she comes up with this Bible in her hands that somebody had given her. And basically she said, I've confessed my sins to the Lord. I've given my heart to Jesus. I've now been redeemed. I've been changed. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you, you filthy sinner, better do the same thing or you're gonna die and go to hell and burn forever. <laughs> Well, did that work? Did that conversion technique work? That conversion technique does not work. <laughs> and, and I might say that you can spit scripture at somebody forever and ever, but if you're not coming across as sincere, honest, and with compassion and great empathy, it's wasted words. So then for three years, she's now going to these prayer meetings, church meetings, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you're watching her, and, and her life changes. Tell us about what drew you to that life change in her. What did you see? What I saw in her, and, and I did occasionally participate with some of the activities, um, and I saw the same thing in some of the other participants in those different prayer groups. But what I saw was that same thing that I saw in Jack. There is a quiet peace, 
an assurance that you're loved by God, cared for by God, and you can trust in him. And when you make that leap and make that step, you're in. Mm. And nobody can take you out. Mm. She had that. Mm. And it irritated me because she got there before I did. <laughs> uh, basically, you know, my pride and arrogance. I can't admit she's right, I'm wrong. Um, and it took me three years to work that out. Um, but but you I finally it, did. You finally did. Finally worked it out. But it was that quiet mm. being of salt and light as evidence of what God has done for her and was doing within me. So it's interesting because we're actually, I will be preaching on this very topic from 1 Peter chapter 3 next week. Um, but it reminds me of the quote, you know, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Yep. So she had a quiet faithfulness where she was salt and light in your home. Mm -hmm. um, so you finally gave your life to Jesus. You, you finally said, okay, I fall before you, save me and lead me. What was that like for you? What led to that? Well, I had had um, some great assignments and command assignments. I had had um, a lot of good things. I had a good career going. At that point, I was getting some high-profile assignments to where I had great visibility and being known. And at the same time, I realized I was empty on the inside. On the outside, career-wise, it looked great. On the inside, it didn't look so good. Mm. Because I knew, I knew I was not there yet. And it was very, very tough to walk that through. And until I finally said, Lord, have your way. Mm. Uh, and Kathy, I asked her to lead me in, in prayer, uh, which, which she did. But I asked her first to pray for me. Uh, what did she, she say? Said, you got to pray for yourself. Mm. And that's what I did. But she kind of gave me the words because I didn't have it. You know, what was I going to say, you know? Mm. So she led you through the sinner's prayer and mm -hmm. not only did you have life change in Christ, now you've given your life to actually vocationally serving him and you've got, Kathy finally had to say no more theological degrees, Jim. After doing intervention, I know you have an MA and a, an MDiv and a, and a DMIN and uh, you've now committed your life to helping others find the same love and peace. How, uh, two more questions, how have you forgiven those in authority that made so many bad decisions? Well, I have to recognize that <clears throat> I've made bad decisions too. Uh, I'm a sinner like everybody else because we all fall in that category and there's no greater or lesser sin. Sin before God is sin, period. There's no more egregious than others. And once I understood my forgiveness, that it was granted to me, that freed me to forgive other people. Because if he can forgive me, how can I withhold it from anybody else? So regardless of what I may have said in earlier years about some of these cast of characters, whether they be in Washington or within the chain of command, uh, I had to let that go and just leave it in the Lord's hands. He's the judge, not me. Mm. I'm not his judge. I'm mm. not the judge of anyone. Mm. Last question. You could share a message of hope to a 22-year-old Jim Amendolia. What would it be? 
Well, actually, Molly prayed part of this this morning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. If somebody would have said that to me mm. with compassion, mm. with understanding, with sincerity, I might have gotten it at 22, but I didn't. But I trust the Lord in that working out for later on. So to close, I just want to extend Jim's story to our story. Um, the question is, when you're under poor leadership, but you're called to be subject to it, what do you do? If you're suffering, does God see your suffering? If you're wounded, does he see your wounds? If you're sinning or have sinned, does he or see your sins? What do we make of that? Um, the Bible is crystal clear that God is not far from our pain and our suffering, but actually enters it and takes it on in the person of Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning that we read concludes with these words. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So like a, a young Jim Amendolia, I know there are people in this room that are suffering in some way, shape, or form. And the gospel says God loves you, he sees you, and he comes to you by sending his son to die for you, to be as close to you and redeem you as he could possibly be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Jim, Jim finally got it. Through all this pain, through all this drinking, this separation, it, Jesus closes the gap, not just for Jim, but for you and for me. Can, can you say, I know this living hope. I've got the quiet peace that Kathy had, that Jack Gottlieb have that they lived with and then extended to others? Or do you want to receive that peace today? If you want to say yes to that, I invite you to now bow your heads with me as I close with a word of prayer and we, we look towards communion. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would search us and know us young and old. You would see our sin and our pain and our suffering. You would know our circumstance. And you would draw close to us. For those of us in this room that the light bulb's finally coming on, that we are empty, we are miserable, and we need peace, I, I invite you to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I've been sinned against. But I know you came to take away my sins and to give me new life to give me a quiet peace. I want that peace 
Jesus, I recognize you as my Lord and my Savior. If that's where you find yourself today, I just want you to silently say yes. Jesus, be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you, God, for Jim's life and the life he's now extended to those in this room and elsewhere through this book. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.